Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with health psychologist Sula Windgassen. Sula, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm health psychologist, CBT therapist, EMDR therapist, and mindfulness teacher. My um, area of expertise is working with people with chronic health conditions, um, using psychology and psychological approaches to improve physical and mental well-being outcomes. Very good. So you're like pretty comprehensive. You've got like uh, a lot of areas of mental health covered in uh, in your experience. And just to uh, remind people, this is part of a, a mental health and mindfulness series. So I'll be having a few other experts on and Sula is the first one. So a health psychologist, that's kind of a, a newer term in um, the field of psychology. Can you explain a little bit about the work you do, how you became qualified, and then the type of clients you would work with? Yeah, absolutely. So health psychology is quite broad. So um, very broadly speaking, it's the the use of psychology applied to um, health. So whether that's to preventatively um, address, uh, yeah, things like physical activity, reducing smoking to prevent against long term health conditions, or whether it's to help people who are now already experiencing physical health conditions there's lots of different ways that psychology can be used to um, improve health on one scale preventative on one scale kind of tertiary and meeting uh, an existing need my area is more on that side so kind of clinically focused working with people who are experiencing persistent physical symptoms long-term health conditions and utilizing different evidence-based psychological approaches in order to uh, reduce the impact that the illness has on their life, but also in a lot of cases, use particular skills, techniques, understanding in order to improve their physical symptom severity as well, using a lot of the neuroscience research on pain and kind of psychoneuroimmunology research on the impact of stress on health and uh, lots more. Very good. Yeah. So a, a kind of a common thing that I see is that people are a little bit like kind of nervous or anxious on the gym floor you know to go and train on their own or exercise on their own you know could be outside a gym setting we'll just say to be active um so like let's say somebody's listening like uh and they struggle with this challenge what would you recommend or what would you be able to help them with if they let's just say they had general they're, they're generally anxious or they're just anxious when it comes to like activity and exercise is there any kind of uh strategies you would use for a client like that Yeah, I guess before I go into the strategies, I'd be interested to know what's behind the anxiety. So it tends to be a symptom rather than, you know, just something that happens. What what are the feared predictions and outcomes? And a lot of the time with things like this, it might be around evaluation from others, fear of judgment or, you know, self-efficacy. Do people think that they're going to be able to do what they're setting out to do? And what's the what's the worry if they're not able to do, you know, if they would go to the gym and only be able to press, I don't know, five kilograms as opposed to what other people are pressing, what's the implication for them? And like I say, a lot of the time there might be focus on what other people are going to think and that fear of judgment. Um, And then that might not be the end though. There might be more fears around what that judgment means as well. Does that mean something bad about me? Does that mean, you know, um, I'm a weakling or, you know, I'm a failure or whatever it might be. Um, but that it might also, you know, mean something regardless of judgment about how they see themselves. So there can be a lot of self-esteem issues around aesthetics as well. 
um, whether they're, you know, a particular size and they, they fear that everybody else is going to be much slimmer or, you know, they, um, they have all these kind of preoccupations with what that means about them being lesser in some way. And as humans, generally, we don't like to see ourselves as lesser. Um, it's an uncomfortable position to be in. So to, to then put ourselves in a position where we might be confronted with that possibility is really anxiety inducing. So I guess the, the first step would be to understand what is it, what specifically are your fears and, and then to kind of unpack, unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. <clears throat> You're reminding me of a, a previous episode I had with uh, Jamie Tarter and she's a researcher. So uh, she was looking at like anxiety and um, I think it was, oh, cortisol, sorry, it was cortisol. So basically mm-hmm. She had participants in the lab and uh, I think it was social evaluation was like the number one thing that got people's cortisol and stress up the most. Right. Yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. something that you would see with clients? Um, and if not, what are kind of other things that you would uh, help people with? Yeah. I mean, for me, generally, I mean, social evaluation comes in a lot across all different sorts of presentations in, in people with um chronic illness there's all sorts of concerns about what other people might be thinking about them I'm a burden or I'm not I'm lazy I'm not pulling my weight so I'm making it up so all of these things can feel really isolating a big client group that I work with are people with irritable bowel syndrome so my PhD was looking at cognitive behavioral therapy for people with IBS and how effective that was and as you might imagine a common concern coming up around social evaluation there is what are people going to think about my symptoms if I were to pass gas, if I were to keep needing to go to the toilet and what are people going to think? And that is often entrenched with this sense of embarrassment and shame around toileting where there is like a social taboo, but often um, what we're exploring is to what degree is that taboo applied to other people versus ourselves. So we might feel more shame about our toileting than other people would kind of show judgment towards being confronted by the fact that we need to go to the toilet um so yeah working with uh, fear of social evaluation in all different ways across different presentations and part of it is exploring what the beliefs are around that what do you think that people are going to think and examining how true that's likely to be part of it is testing things out so putting people in situations that they maybe avoid in a way that they're able to put themselves into so not maybe jumping in the deep end but building up to things and and getting that live data back and that often is a really great way of shifting anxiety and that can be in the form of exposure so you just say you know can I tolerate this anxiety does it go down and then does that change my belief or it can be in the form of like a behavioral experiment if I go to the toilet twice whilst I'm at a restaurant does anybody actually notice for example very good yeah so like jumping back to the example of uh, somebody who's anxious around exercise or they're a bit intimidated by it, um, mm. like how would they sort of start that process of uh, exercising as they would like and not kind of letting their fears hold them back? What would you, so we'll say they're like, I'm just not going to the gym, not going to the pool. I'm not going to the tennis court, for example. I just, I can, I can't handle that stress. What would be the kind of the starting point or the smallest step they could take? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be individual depending on like what is their physical activity at the moment. So if they're not doing anything because of these concerns about social judgment, then it might be about finding a safe space that they can get up their stamina a little bit and just get familiar with the movement, whether that's doing like yoga at home or 
running when it's quiet or whatever it might be so that they can start just getting comfortable with the process of getting out of breath and feeling the way your body feels when you're exercising which can actually feel very uncomfortable (laughs) for a lot of people um and so yeah to, to get familiar with that on your own can be a really helpful way to then feel like okay I can tolerate that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be and from there is there a iteration of this that I would be prepared to do in public and so then you know say somebody then is running on their own maybe they can then find a partner that's going to be supported with them or they could go to the gym and just go on the treadmill maybe they can go out of quieter time and then build up to when it's busier and what you're doing is you're gradually exposing yourself to different ways of um, being in that feared kind of situation and as you get that data your brain starts to recalibrate okay no judgment coming in here nobody seems to be looking at me maybe I can try the other stuff so that kind of graded exposure is one way around but I think also you know in terms of social evaluation Sometimes it can be just really helpful to find a way to um, seek some kind of social support and some social in. So group classes are really good for that, because particularly if they say, you know, classes are suitable for beginners because everybody's doing the same kind of exercise. If it's mixed ability, you're not going to feel on the spot, you know, check out those kind of things. So you're not, you know, completely doing yourself a disservice by going to (laughs) an athlete's class. But um that can then make you feel part of something and reduce those those feelings and feel supported as well if you make connections in those class and you've got a trainer. But also if you have the ability, having a personal trainer or having you know an introduction from the gym that you're in or whatever, those things can really break down some kind of stigmas and barriers around, or I don't know how to use the machines or everyone's kind of hostile and judgmental. If you make some of those connections, that can, again, allay some of those fears. Yeah, so it's kind of like strength in numbers is is true, yeah, especially yeah. <laughs> in a social setting. Yeah, and uh, is it kind of is it important to focus on why someone um, has like a, we'll say a block around you know exercise, like what's holding them back, um, or is it more important to just focus on the behavior itself that they want to change? What or would you focus on both? You know, what would be kind of like uh, an important focus there? Yeah, I I mean I'm. I'm always interested in the why, because I think that leads to sustaining behavior change. So I think there are things that we can do to change behavior without really questioning that. But generally what I would say is combine both of those uh, in parallel at some point, but you might start with a behavior change and then come to try and understand why a bit more, or you might start with the why and then bring in behavior change. It depends on the, the presentation, but if people are really you know, really have high concerns about it, then it is worthwhile unpacking what are the main blocks. And for some people, it might be, you know, things about social judgment and trying to understand why that's so scary to them. Have they had really negative experiences of that, which have really sat with them and um, transcend, you know, kind of rational reason in the moment of how likely that's going to be. Or it could be things like I mentioned about the tolerance of bodily sensations. For some people, that heart rate elevating and feeling all sweaty and hot just feels really unpleasant and horrible. And it doesn't feel at all like it's healthy. Um, and particularly people with anxiety disorders, heart, an increased heart rate can really um, 
yeah, really signal that things aren't good and get get into a bit of a panic. So if it's those kind of visceral sensations that are a block, then that's useful data to know because we need to target that. Yeah. So is it is it fair to say that an element of mindfulness the whole way through as a change in behavior is, is like kind of essential to see uh, what actually is going on in the reality of the situation? Is that something that you work on as well? Yeah, I mean, mindfulness is a term that gets used a lot. And I guess when I think about mindfulness and when I think about where it's come from, it's come from those the mindfulness-based stress reduction courses um, developed by John Kabat-Zinn, right? And the, the premise of mindfulness there is that partly it's the attentional awareness, so, so noticing where our attention is, what we're paying attention to, what thought processes are going on. But there's two other parts of that as well, um, which is the the position of non-judgment. Um, and so whatever arises is what arises. We're not kind of negatively narrating or positively narrating. We're just kind of seeing and being with, which is that metacognitive attitude uh, and position is not one that we're generally familiar with. And then the other element to it as well is compassion. So being permissive of our own experience. So often people think they're being mindful because they're like, I'm having this negative thought, this negative thought, this negative thought. But when they're having that negative, these negative thoughts, they're also telling themselves off for it. Oh my gosh, that's pathetic. Why am I thinking that? That's really not going to happen. So they're just getting into a spiral of becoming more aware of thoughts, but they're not really being mindful because there's no observer perspective. Um, They're just kind of getting back into it and adding more to it. And there's no compassion. So I think those two parts of mindfulness are so key. Um, So to answer your question, then yes, I think mindfulness is a a real good thread throughout every bit of behavior change. Yeah. So what exactly could someone notice? Let's say they're mindless before they work with you. (laughs) Hopefully not. And then they work with you and they become more mindful and more compassionate. And maybe just explain like self-compassion a little bit as well. Uh, what difference could they notice in terms of an experience, let's just say on the gym floor, for example, before and after? Um, Yeah, it's a good question. So I suppose just to explain self-compassion, again, another term that often gets conflated with self-indulgence. So people think, oh, if I'm being self-compassionate, then I'm not going to be disciplined at all and I'm not going to improve myself. But we can, again, subdivide self-compassion or compassion into four elements and one of them is this, you know, the sense of kindness, being warm towards yourself. Um, but one of them is also around identifying that we're suffering in some way, that acknowledgement. And then the next part of that is being aware that that's a shared human experience. So that's not a sign of failure. It's not a sign of being weak um, or lesser. It's part of the human experience. And then the the crucial part, which kind of negates this idea that it's self-indulgent is the commitment and intention to want to change or improve or alleviate that suffering. So if you're somebody that's you know really unfit and um, is reliant on comfort eating, that's not good for your overall health and it's not good for your overall kind of mental well-being either. And if we were saying that's uh, self, you know, the self-indulgent route would be whenever you're feeling crap eat the food that you want to eat that's self whether we call it self-indulgent but that's not self-compassion and it's not helpful what the self-compassionate thing would be would be to acknowledge 
that you are suffering, that you do feel crap, that things are difficult, softening towards yourself and asking yourself what do you need in that moment? And the question of whether you need to eat or whether something else is going to better serve you, you know, gives you your your direction. It's not to eat. That's not actually going to help anything. It probably is going to make things worse in the long term or just even the immediate term after you've eaten because you probably feel feelings of guilt. So then it, it points you in a better direction. So when I talk about self-compassion, it is really that kind of pragmatic idea of what self-compassion is, being permissive and warm towards yourself, but also pragmatic of, in, in what changes you need to make to actually better your experience and alleviate your suffering. So to go back to your question, um, the changes that someone might see on the gym floor, if they've been anxious about going before and they um, were kind of not wanting to do exercise in front of people, I guess the reduction of that anxiety, we would imagine one would see through doing uh, different bits of kind of experimenting and paying attention to particular thoughts and exploring how valid that was and being aware of all of the kind of uh, data that we're getting back from those things. And then when you're on the gym floor, it might not be that you don't have any thoughts about evaluation of others. You might notice someone look over and immediately get that pang of anxiety. But in the kind of mindful approach to that, you notice how you physically feel. You realize that it's triggered by this look. You notice all the kind of thoughts of, oh, my God, did they look at me in a negative way? Are they thinking that I'm doing this wrong? And you're kind of a bit separated from those thoughts and able to decenter rather than kind of close in on yourself and um, try and think your way out of that. Like, oh, my gosh, am I doing it wrong? What do I need to correct? Blah, 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 blah. Instead, you just come back to your physical movements and getting back into the exercise and finding comfort in your body. And then we've seen the anxiety reduce. Um, and also, I guess, from the compassionate element. So what if that person has made some kind of judgment? Does that actually determine my worth? Or is this just a good thing that I'm here doing this exercise, which is good for my body? Yeah, very good. So would you see that self-compassion is lacking in society nowadays? Or um, have you have you seen examples of it, you know, um, with clients, what would be your kind of opinion on uh, how kind of widespread self-compassion is in society? Yeah, I think the opposite of self-compassion is self-criticism. And I don't know if it's increased self-criticism, but I would say that the vast majority of us are very self-critical. And I think, you know, a lot of things in our society set us up to be self-critical And like I say, we're not familiar with self-compassion. We don't know that we can be kind to ourselves and improve ourselves. We just think to improve, we have to be our own biggest critic. And that's, you know, reflected back to us in lots of different things from the glorification of, you know, music schools and sports people that had really tough coaches that didn't let them off until they got it right and all of this kind of stuff. That can be effective to a degree, but it also has massive negative downsides. And um, yeah, in order to to really kind of find a balance where we are improving ourselves, but we're not kind of finding dissatisfaction with where we are at the moment as well. We we need to be self-compassionate, but generally I would say society is very, very self-critical. And I see that in everybody that I work with, <laughs> colleagues, patients, um, yeah and otherwise yeah so then um 
what are kind of ways to avoid self-criticism if if it's in society already if people are already like most people you see colleagues even you know experts are already self-critical how can you like avoid it do you have any kind of you know go-to strategies for avoiding self-criticism number one thing is to become aware that you are and lots of times even myself like my own experience was I was thinking oh I'm actually very self uh, self-compassionate um I, I I'm not that hard on myself and I think some people can be lulled into that sense that they're not critical because they they don't have this real explicit critic that's going that was wrong that was really bad oh my god you need to do better but other self-critics can be slightly sneakier like mine is a bit more like um are you sure you want to do that? Because that might be upsetting for such and such. Um, and, you know, you didn't really think about that. So it's kind of positioned itself as a way of helping me, but actually at the expense of my own ability to relax. <laughs> um, and and the kind of, I guess, what is it? The ultimatum being, if you, if you don't address that, then that's going to be quite bad. So, I think that the number one, to answer your question, the number one thing that we need to do is become aware of what our critic presents as and, and look out for it. And part of that is mindfulness, is kind of noticing our thoughts, noticing our motivation for things, noticing how we feel. And that can be an easier way to get back to our thoughts. So, oh, I feel kind of off in this situation, whatever that emotion is, anxious, guilty, um, you know, sad what are the thoughts that are going on right now? And usually even just kind of writing it out pen to paper, we become aware of loads of different critical thoughts in some shape or form. And below the negative automatic thoughts that are a bit more surface level is probably some sort of unrelenting high standard that we've got. I should always be achieving. To to not achieve is to fail, to um, put other people before myself is honorable and to not is selfish so as we collect a bit of data on our negative automatic thoughts we probably identify some underlying themes of these quite you know severe rigid beliefs which are uh, only going to make us critical so I think that the first thing that's really important is to pay pay attention to our thought processes and then look for common themes and um, explore that a little bit Brilliant. Yeah. So you're, I feel like you're talk, talking a little bit about acceptance. So let's say somebody, um, they're self-critical or they, they don't even know what self-compassion is, or they have, you know, some kind of uh, challenge like, you know, IBS, for example, something like that. Let's say they don't accept it. Like, what's the issue there? Why, do, why does somebody even need to accept something? Why can't they just kind of like, you know, try harder, be more motivated and improve that way? Yeah. Um. It's a good question. And one of the best ways that I've got of depicting this is if you if you imagine kind of making a, a clenched fist, so that's that's something that you can't change, whether it's your IBS, whether it's not being able to um press 25 kilograms or whatever it would be. Um, that's the thing that you you really want to change and get past. And for some things, right, it's possible we can build up beyond 25 kilograms. For some things, it's not possible. But even in the things that it is possible, we've got huge resistance in the moment to it being the way it is. And that being so, that 
generates a lot of tension. So we've got the the fist, which is the thing that we don't want. And then as we're not accepting, so we're resisting, we're pushing against that with our other hand, we can imagine, which builds more tension, you know, just even to take that physical enactment to the the tension then goes from the fist all the way all the way down to the forearms to the elbow and on the other side the part that's generating the resistance so you're kind of in this standoff between two parts of you this is what the way it is and this is the way I want it to be and you know more tension ensues and, and with that tension comes mental battles comes physical tension comes um, a, a difficulty in focusing because we're just stuck on this one thing that we want to be different. So often we can generate change to the thing that we we don't want to accept by leaning into it a little bit more. But I think the word acceptance is often conflated with resignation. Oh, I'm resigned to this. But actually what we mean is bear with it and then let's kind of move with it a little bit and see how we can change via uh, changing how we're relating to it. Yeah, go with it. I love that idea instead of trying to fight against it. I imagine mm-hmm. somebody, you know, driving down the street and there's like a roadblock and they're like, no, no, I'm getting through this roadblock. Yeah. <laughs> and if they just like, you know, maybe backed up and went down a different street, you yeah. know, sure, it takes a little bit longer, but they're getting to where they want to go as opposed, as opposed to building up all that tension. Um, yeah. So you just kind of mentioned data a little bit. So um, and like we're talking a bit about awareness and uh, being aware of, you know, challenges, you know, with your health. So like, how can someone, I guess, kind of collect data? Like would journaling be one way to do it? Or is it like working with uh, a psychologist such as yourself? Yeah. I mean, I always talk about collecting data because in the initial stages of therapy, I've got a model of therapy that, you know, I think works based on my training, based on my research, based on lots of times anecdotal experience and personal experience um but as a uh, patient's coming into therapy they want to see how this all relates to them so we generate a hypothesis based on all of this research and training but in order for us to work out how valid that is and that we're going down the the right street and to have that buy-in it's important that we generate some hypotheses Um, And then we get some data to kind of corroborate. So an example would be, uh, from my knowledge, in irritable bowel syndrome, one of the things that maintains um, bowel dysregulation is skipping meals, avoiding particular foods, um, leaving a long time between eating, sitting on the toilet for a long period of time, trying to strain, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the first things that we do is we get out a symptom monitoring diary where we can rate symptom severity, stress, number of times went to the toilet, how long spent straining, how many meals missed, what time they were eating. So some of these key parameters, when we get it back, we say, oh yeah, your your symptoms did seem to flare up, for example, on the, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, after you'd spent three days being really stressed and you'd avoided um, meals um, in the latter half of the day on the two days prior. So we can start making those links so um, in, in therapy, it's set up that way. We generate hypotheses and then we create a symptom monitoring diary or a, a monitoring diary of some sort. And then we use that to inform what we're going to tweak and change. So people can make their own, right? If they've identified, okay, this is my issue. Um, and this is what I think is going on here. So how, what data points do I need? You can generate your own. But what I will say is it's best to get support 
um, from a professional with that because we can also get really fixated if we've generated particular hypotheses. So in IBS, a big thing is these particular foods are bad for me. I should never eat them. And then because we're paying so much attention and we're hyper-focused, we just get that data back and it's not quite right. We're, we're not looking at other factors which are important to take into account as well. Yeah, I can imagine you you think you found a solution to your your challenge, um, but somebody with your expertise would be able to say, you know, let's look big picture and see what else is going on here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, what was your kind of personal experience with like psychology, mental health, um, and what led you to the kind of the level of expertise that you have now? So my my experience, I did a psychology undergrad. I really enjoyed it. I did a health psychology module, and that was the one that I enjoyed most. And I was really fascinated in that mind body connection. The lecturer presented all sorts of research on psychoneuroimmunology and some seminal studies around how stressed carers were compared to non-stressed carers, and they were each given these um, punch biopsies, and they found that the stressed carer group, their wound took on average, I think it was nine days longer to heal than the non-stressed group, which kind of spoke to the fact that, you know, yeah, our immune system is physiologically impaired by stress. And then from there, they, they looked into precise mechanisms. So found that all very fascinating. And then I was told how competitive psychology was to get into. And I'd gotten a part-time marketing job so I thought I would give that a go full-time when I finished and work out what I wanted to do but whilst I was doing that job I got quite ill and I think again just bringing in my models of working with people looking at the biopsychosocial aspect of it I was prone to get um, urinary tract infections and that's what I started getting anyway so that's the kind of physiological sensitivity or predilection that my body has um, but then uh, I socially didn't have my networks anymore. They'd all moved out of the city and I was um, much more kind of alone and I wasn't enjoying my job and there was a lot of pressure and it wasn't very reinforcing. And then, you know, psychologically, as I started getting these symptoms, I was worrying about what does this mean and are they ever going to go? What's going to happen now? They keep evolving. I don't have any answers. So the, the three experiences kind of merged together, which meant that these symptoms kept going for a long time. And it was through my dad, who was doing a master's in mindfulness, suggesting that I did mindfulness, which initially I was resistant to. But I decided to give a go uh, with some more convincing by his partner, who's a bit more skilled in explaining why that might be helpful. because She's a clinical psychologist. I started doing mindfulness and I found that actually that did change how I was feeling towards my symptoms and perhaps gave me a bit more reprieve than I had previously. Um, as I started seeing those benefits, I decided I'm going to go back and study health psychology um, as a master's, which I then went on to do. And whilst I was doing that, I got involved in research projects around mindfulness for multiple sclerosis. And we saw that that had a huge impact on people's psychological well-being. Um, and these people had, you know, really hard trajectories to get their heads around but just eight weeks of mindfulness delivered via Skype made a huge difference to them and then from there I did a PhD uh, looking at uh, CBT for IBS and then I did um, postdoc looking at uh, developing a CBT based intervention for people with irritable uh, inflammatory bowel disease sorry and then I realized that you mentioned before you know the broad kind of areas of mental health as well 
I was very specialized in looking at the psychological interactions between um, particular psychological experiences and health, but I had no real knowledge of wider mental health conditions. And, you know, there's so much comorbidity between mental health conditions and health conditions. So I, I then did a postgraduate diploma in CBT, which placed me in an NHS service working predominantly with people with anxiety disorders and depression. And I worked there for three years and um, became a senior therapist there. And then just recently I've um, left to establish a specialist health psychology practice. So that's my, my broad journey. Um, yeah. Wow. That's like so much experience. And uh, one question I was going to ask that you sort of answered, but I, was, I still wanted to talk about is what, how, how important is social support? So you spoke about your dad and, a master's in mindfulness which sounds amazing so um I love the idea of going back to college it's kind of like never too late to go back to college once you realize what you want to do yeah because um I went back I feel like I was 26 so when I went to college first when I was 18 I was like a headless chicken like I was I was like sort of you know caught up in like you know society being like you have to go to college which was mm-hmm. fine you know I'm, I think I'm better for it but didn't really uh benefit me as 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 much as when I went back when I was older and I was like a man on a mission. I was like, I'm here to learn, uh, you know, about this area and uh, it's going to lead me to here. It was like a totally different experience. So I guess two questions, social support, you know, mm-hmm. is it important? And then just your thoughts around going back to college, if you did go back to college when you're a bit older. Yeah, social support. I mean, it's fundamental uh, and there's different types of, of social support. So there's the kind of emotional social support, which you know, different people need to different degrees, but we all need some basic emotional support to, to tell us that we're safe. Um, and then there's the kind of practical social support um, in in terms of, yeah, somebody there to, to, if you're ill and you can't really make healthy meals, someone there to make you healthy meals is going to make a huge amount of difference. Um, and then there's the kind of informational social support. So people that you can trust for information, whether that's doctors, whether that's um, you're a friendly pharmacist or a physiotherapist, those three different types are, are really important. But on the more, I guess, um, I guess just the, the social connection element, which transcends social support as a construct, I think. Uh, in fact, one of my... PhD proposals was around the role of social connection in mindfulness how important is that in order for us to see the benefits of mindfulness because mindfulness is usually uh, in traditional forms practiced in a group and we learn from each other's experiences and we feel a sense of kind of closeness to the people that we practice with um, and that really makes us feel part of something which is kind of almost an unquantifiable feeling but it just has such an effect and you see that with people that go through different illnesses and things like that when you connect on a on a shared human connection level it just makes a huge difference and there's fascinating research um I think David Hamilton um talks about this in some of his books and there's another researcher that I always forget his name but around the physiological health benefits that come with social connection social support you know on those physiological measures reduce cortisol um and other kind of markers of central nervous system functioning autonomic nervous system functioning um all improved when there is more social support and another fascinating study around um there was this 
little kind of village I think it was in the US or this might have been Italy I always forget precise details anyway all of the there was a cluster of different villages and all of them were similar um in terms of where they were in proximity to the main city what the environment was like what kind of food they ate etc etc but this one village was different in that the sense of community that was there it was a um, it wasn't a commuter town. It was, you know, generations of people stayed there and there was a real sense of community. People know each other. And so the older people, um, th- there was an increase in longevity of people living in that particular uh, village or town as opposed to all of the rest of them. And it and they controlled for all sorts of other markers, you know, diet, metabolic rate, et cetera, et cetera. This social support element, social connection element was protective beyond everything else so it just shows how fundamental that is yeah i I think that study was in the usa i feel like i've heard about that yeah Um, i think there's been a few actually but yeah i think you're right the one that i'm thinking of i think it was in the usa yeah yeah um so i kind of feel as though society or in the west western world it's very like individualistic you know independence and being like the number one being the ceo it's like oh that's the best thing like elon musk michael jordan tiger woods you know lebron these are all like you know the pinnacles of just like society coolest people in society whatever like that's success and uh also it's almost like being busy is sort of valued also as well Mm -hmm. so like individualism and just always being busy oh if you're busy you know you must be productive and that's great then like you know of course you're you're a good person then if you're busy all the time is there any side effects to that or uh, what are your thoughts around that? And um, maybe like, you know, uh, what would you propose instead that people could uh, value instead of those sort of values for mental health? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the chronic problems in our society because there is this over value on productivity and achievement. And that's coming from somebody that does value those things you know I I do but there has to be a balance with other things that are important to you if that's the primary thing that takes all of your attention and all of your focus and and everything else could you know fly by the wayside then there's going to be a kickback at some point maybe not now but once you get to that goal likely that happens in fact you know we see that with celebs as well they get to the top of their game and then they just turn to addiction or they you know have some kind of mental health crisis because and and lots of um successful business people have talked about this it's kind of like an a, a reserve that will never be filled you get there and then you kind of want the next thing but you're chasing this high um that that can never be satiated so it, it really is problematic in terms of you being able to leave a life full of contentment so there's no reason why you can't do that and achieve but we need to check out what the other things that are important to you and there's no right or wrong here um but generally when i work with my clients we look at different uh areas of life so relationships that can be romantic it can be just broadly like relationships friendships family um and then you know spirituality for some people that's religion but for some people that's you know having a connection with nature um private leisure you know what's meaningful to you and for some people that would be well I really love to exercise or dive or you know do outdoorsy things and for other people that's more I really like you know reading and getting lost in characters and being creative so there's no right or wrong and I think it's just about using those different areas to identify for you what's important and 
you'd be amazed to find how difficult people find that because we never we never really ask ourselves that question we're funneled into the school system and then perhaps university or some kind of work hierarchical structure and that's our tunnel vision because the idea is we make enough money so we've got enough safety and freedom to do stuff like holidays or buy more stuff but um once we get there we find that that again it's like not being able to fill that hole so the earlier you can ask yourself that question and give yourself permission to explore maybe you don't know right away but just test things out um the better yeah i feel like you're talking a lot about people's values so how how would knowing your values versus not knowing them how would that like tie into your health you know let's say someone is just like oh yeah you know health being healthy is good and you know i know it's important um but maybe it's not for me you know uh would you do value work with clients and you know why should somebody consider their values yeah so in order to try and get them to look after their health do you mean yeah let's say they're like um you know my health isn't great but you know that's fine um it could be better and um let's just say they've been diagnosed with a condition you know like high blood pressure or you know maybe type 2 diabetes for example mm. so i guess yeah i mean it depends on what the what they're coming to me for if they're coming because they've got low moods or they're anxious or they do think that they need to get a better control over their health then we'd be looking at this probably for different reasons but the values that we're exploring would be the same so i suppose um one thing that we want to know is you know how they spend in their time currently and is that in line with what's important to them so if they're sat there reading the news all of the time and kind of getting angry on Twitter, is that a life that's meaningful to them? And what would they like to be doing instead? What's important to them from there? And how can that be balanced out over different kind of constructs? And is their health getting in the way currently? Or will not looking after their health get in the way of them being able to live in line with these values so it can be like a motivating way to say let's take it a bit seriously but let's try and incorporate things that you can do to look after your health in a way that's in line with your values so if somebody really likes being outdoorsy then it's not that we need to get you down to the gym to get your blood pressure you know under control it's that we you know go out hiking on the weekend with friends or whatever it might be so there's lots of different ways that just tapping into values can inform how to navigate things that are currently difficult for you in a way that's going to better your your health and well-being yeah so kind of tied into to health you, you had a post uh called no c-section and pain and that kind of ties into um mindfulness as well i think you know if you're mindful you'll be aware if you're in pain or not um and then um the nociception is kind of just something I'm not too familiar with. So you just talk about like, you know, pain and uh, nociception and if mindfulness ties into that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So nociception is the part of the pain equation that we think completely determines pain generally as a society. So we're not, again, taught why we experience pain. We assume that there's some kind of structural damage or kind of noxious stimuli that sends chemical signals to the brain to say, this is going wrong, generate some pain now, please. The idea being, obviously, that that's kind of evolutionary, evolutionarily beneficial for our survival. If we know that we've been cut, then we can address that. Or if we know that we're kind of getting some kind of irritation, we're not going to be poisoned. But that chemical signaling that happens 
that's only one part of the equation and that's the nociception part right some some kind of um some stimuli stimulates the nerves in that particular area and that sends off nociception to the brain and that kind of will inform the brain that there's something gone on there and that can generate a pain sensation but there's another key part of the whether the pain sensation is generated or not and that is the kind of psychosocial context so our appraisal is really important of that as well our um, emotions are really important if we're anxious then we're more likely to feel the pain or more likely to feel the pain stronger or for longer because our body's in a state of hypervigilance so we've got more kind of reactivity in our nervous system similarly you know um that comes the interaction with trauma early trauma or trauma throughout the lifetime that can have an impact on how our central nervous system is functioning we're more likely to be hypervigilant and highly reactive to um experiences in our environment and, and particularly pain so we might then get more um yeah more sensation of pain so if we think about nociception plus the psychosocial experience the nociception is kind of part of the relay and then the degree to which pain sensation is turned up or down is dependent on these other factors so we can in some situations get nociception and no pain so there's a famous um uh talk that um i forget what his name is his second name's Lorimer, but he um that's going to really annoy me. But anyway, he's a big pain researcher and he talks about how um, he's Australian. So he um, was walking in the bush and uh, he experienced like a scratch on his leg and he didn't think anything about it. Um, and so he just carried on, you know, walking. And then that scratch was akin to like a, a twig scratching him, which he'd felt many times before. Off he goes. And then he, collapses because he's been bitten by some kind of venomous snake anyway he gets um the antidote he's you know nothing bad happens fortunately and um that's all fine and then he goes walking in the bush sometime later um not on the same day but months after and he experiences a scratch in his leg and all of a sudden he starts sweating he, he feels his heart palpitating he gets this um uh, real pain coming from his leg and that's because his nervous system is snake bite, snake bite, snake bite. But this time it was just a twig. So our, our whole kind of system learns um, how to respond, how to turn up that amplification on pain based on our experiences and what, to what degree it's likely to be a threat. Things that are likely to cause it a threat, obviously, are things that have put us in danger before. But it can also be uh, other things that make us feel unsafe. Um, so that just generalizes out anyway um and also the threat of the fact that this might go on forever so you know people with chronic illness or pain that is painful in its own right comes up for whatever reason a mix of factors usually if they're then confronted by this pain again and again they start to have this threatening thought what if this never goes away and then that's you know uh, amplifies that threat so it keeps the, this pain cycle going well yeah that's fascinating so is that a an example of ptsd that that guy had in australia not ptsd but you know that's part of the way that ptsd functions it's just that our our kind of nervous system um has this short short circuit 
short circuit. Why can't I say that word? <laughs> it's quickly like learned a short pathway of, oh my gosh, we need to amplify this much quicker than it otherwise would do. Um, yeah. So it's like we become hypersensitive to something that's happened before. It's like we learned to be sensitive to something, but uh, maybe that's not the most effective way to be because it was almost like, would you say, we kind of mindlessly sometimes form these uh, approaches yeah. to thinking? It's completely subconscious. So it, it might, I think, I don't think he even said in his example, it was that he thought it was a snake bite. It's that his body automatically reacted as though it was. So if we think about that, this is where, you know, we were talking about mindfulness before turning towards our um, cognitive experience is going to be super important because we can identify um, more readily some of these thoughts that are buried beneath the, the surface with with your thinking maybe kind of learned it, it's funny you think of habits and you think of like physical habits like you know oh I walk to work this way or I, I, I on my weekends I go and exercise here but mentally we can also have kind of habits or thought loops even so what are some of the common thinking habits and maybe some of the ineffective ones and, and ways to form more effective thinking habits that uh, benefit our health as opposed to taking away from our health yeah I mean I think the way that our brain is wired up is to make um, shortcuts so that we don't have to use as much brain power. So these thinking habits can be helpful to us, um, but they can easily become the default. And often when we're in negative emotional states or um, in a particular pattern of thinking about particular things they they end up becoming unhelpful and kind of self-fulfilling so there's a whole range of different thinking habits that come up one uh common one which i think is blighting us all a lot at the moment particularly on social media is this black and white type of thinking also known as all or nothing so we completely lose the nuance and we think that something is either one way or the other and we can't see that there's a whole gray area in the middle and we've that really kind of does us a disservice because if you think about in anxiety, people think it's either going to go terribly or it'll be completely fine. And so that's a much more scary prospect than thinking it could just be all right, you know? (laughs) Um, So that's a key one. And again, we can see how it's useful to us because we just kind of categorize, uh, but but it, it ends up doing us a disservice. Another big one is catastrophizing. So we use what information we've got and a sense of fear or uncertainty about how it might go negatively. And that quickly snowballs into the worst case scenario. Again, designed to be effective. If we can look at the, the negative outcomes, we can protect ourselves against it. That's the line of thinking. And so people often buy into this being helpful for them overlooking of course the fact that if we're catastrophizing a lot and thinking of the worst case scenario all the time our mental landscape is just threat 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 what could go wrong um so again it's kind of trying to reel it back in and understanding that in ambiguity it doesn't mean that we always have to be on the lookout for the the worst and the bad things that can happen because there's a whole range of the spectrum that we cut out when we think that way that again neutral or positive um, so I think those are some of the the really key ones. The other one that we touched on before is around, you know, self-critical thinking, the fact that we're we're just so hard on ourselves 
and again, designed to be effect, uh, protective and, and make us effective. You know, if I can identify what I'm not doing well now, then I can improve. But there is another way of doing that. Yeah, that reminds me the catastrophizing with uh, with my working out. And uh, when I'm tired, I'll tell myself, oh, this workout is going to be, you know, it's a bad idea. I'm going to get injured. It's just, it's too much. I can't do it. But I know like my own level of fitness. I know that uh, if I'm feeling tired, I can do a little bit less. You know, there's loads of ways it can go. It's not just like black and white, you know. And uh, the kind of the key thing I try to remind myself of is that uh, the, the workouts where I feel like doing them the least, uh, just by getting it done, they're the most rewarding. So, mm. yeah, I think, you know, that's kind of like a strength of mine. But obviously, you know, pe- different people have different strengths and weaknesses. But, um, yeah, I think kind of going back to what you said earlier about like awareness i think that's that was only possible through like repetition and, and becoming aware so i'm just kind of fortunate that i became aware of that um but um yeah so just another post you had was about things to remember when making changes so um i think people think like okay i'm motivated to you know exercise more or eat better um or manage my mental health better and uh, it's just a case of doing it and it's just going to be like kind of one-to-one. It's just going to be like, you know, I make a decision and the change is going to happen or it's going to be kind of seamless. So mm-hmm. um, what are some things to keep in mind when making a health change specifically? Yeah, I mean, you touched on it there, the fact that motivation can wax and wane. So when we decide to make that change, our motivation's higher just by virtue of coming to that decision. I'm going to do it. Um, but actually, uh, we need the tools and mechanisms to support us when the motivation goes. Uh, I think that's one really important thing to, to navigate, not just to coast on the idea that we're going to stay motivated. Um, and also, you know, with that thinking about that, the thinking habit of all or nothing thinking, we can tend to throw ourselves in the deep end, right? I'm going to go from no exercise to, you know, walking every single day for at least half an hour. Um, and that inevitably is going to lead to like a boom bust pattern. We, we do it for a while. We think we're killing it. And then we're like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. And actually I've taken up a load of my time that I didn't have. And I can't do that now. And then it's really hard to get up that motivation again. So we make things much harder for ourselves when we try and kind of plow in. And I suppose in line with that all or nothing thinking, if we have set out some kind of plan for ourselves of how we're going to do it three times a week and it's reasonable and it's feasible, feasible and it's, you know, even just, you know, 30 minutes, um, but we only go twice instead of three times, we automatically see that as, having failed rather than having achieved. And so that is not a rewarding thing. Whereas if we had that outlook that, oh, I worked out twice, whereas last week I worked out zero, that's a win. Um, So it's that mindset of how we relate to what we're doing. And I think we often forget to reinforce ourselves for what we've done. Um, And we're always looking for how we could have improved or did we meet a particular goal that we set and if we're too much down that path, it all becomes very reinforcing. And then we end up building up these negative associations with the experience. And then we just don't want to do it. So how we feel is important. Yeah. So, yeah, reinforce yourself in the right way. That's where self-compassion mm. comes in, really. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Yeah. 
a lot of useful things to keep in mind. I, I, I definitely see a lot of people jumping into the deep end straight away far too often when they kind of forget that maybe it's their first time trying to change or um, that approach hasn't worked in the past. But um, yeah. you spoke just a little bit about uh, in your research, I think you did like an eight-week mindfulness course. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a bit just about the research on, on mindfulness and then, uh, you know, the research you've done on mindfulness as well? Yeah, so, um, I mean, so much research. On just the physiological benefits of mindfulness, you know, it's associated with reduced marks of stress, whether that's cortisol, improved uh, blood pressure, heart rate, variability, all of the rest of the kind of things. And um, in some chronic illness conditions, it's also associated with the reducing symptom severity, including in irritable bowel syndrome, and in you know really challenging long-term health conditions like multiple sclerosis, it's uh, associated with improved self-compassion, reduced distress, improved acceptance of something that's really difficult to accept. So there's lots of different benefits from the literature of mindfulness. Um, and then my research in particular, that was when I was doing my master's, I was involved in this more kind of feasibility trial, looking at eight-week distance Skype delivered um mindfulness and yeah mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course tailored for people with multiple sclerosis but progressive multiple sclerosis so there was quite a lot of disability um as opposed to when people um have kind of um primary progressive ms this was secondary progressive ms or when they have relapsing remitting ms they could be predominantly kind of able-bodied and not have very many symptoms and they might have a while off before it degenerates but secondary progressive MS they've kind of been told your symptoms have now gotten worse and they're only going to keep getting worse which is a horrible thing imagine to hear because the symptoms can be anything it attacks them any part of the nervous system so this uh, research was so interesting because um yeah this was before pandemic. So before we were all uh, tech savvy with Zoom and whatnot, and Skype was the most clunky thing. Um, Sorry, Skype, but (laughs) it was not great. But it still managed to get the desired effect where people engaged with it. People um, practiced their mindfulness practice. People had an important shared experience together. And from that, they... um, their scores of psychological distress around their MS significantly reduced. And that was just in a real small trial. Um, And then I think there was subsequent studies as well, which kind of reflected those results too. So, I mean, it's something that I, I come back to when I think about the power of mindfulness and I'm working with clients for whom their symptoms could actually get better with using a lot of these techniques that we've talked about um and so there's lots of hope in that and there's and yeah this intrinsic motivation to kind of keep plowing on to do it to get to get to that end result um which also can be a bit of a barrier to doing mindfulness because we're aiming for something and mindfulness is about being with what is but um with these people with ms it wasn't about trying to achieve and it was about kind of making peace with something that's really difficult to make peace with and that they were able to do that and that substantially changed their experience was you know I don't know really inspiring and it it really shows um how how it can improve resilience and how humans you know 
by changing the way they relate to their experience can have a completely different experience. Yeah, definitely. I feel as though a lot of the challenges people face in society today, uh, mindfulness is like almost the perfect kind of uh, treatment for it. I won't say solution because like, you know, you can't, everybody suffers, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. So uh, you can't like get rid of suffering completely, but kind of just like you said, like the relationship to the suffering can Mm. improve a lot. Yeah. Um, So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think something that could help with like your mindfulness or just, you know, maybe challenges in your life is is CBT as well. Is that what you did a lot of your research on? And could you just explain CBT? uh, Because I feel as though I hear it a lot, but I'm not 100% certain on what it is. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners aren't either. Yeah, so CBT, it stands for Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. So it's a type of evidence-based psychotherapy. So it's different to traditional psychotherapy as we might know psychotherapy from the movies where, you know, there's quite a stoic therapist that doesn't really smile or talk much and just asks a lot of questions. CBT is very kind of pragmatic and action-oriented therapy. And the, the premise of the therapy is that in our experience, we can deconstruct it into what happens and then from there our thoughts about it our feelings about it our responses to it and our physical sensations and it's an interaction between all of these things that keep our presentation going so that is um, applicable to different anxiety disorders to different um, uh, chronic illnesses even to depression we have these cycles and because we're experiencing, say, emotional distress, we have all sorts of thoughts about how we need to get out of that. And from there, we have behaviours dictated by those thoughts and we have our physical experience of that. And so all of these things are really intuitive. You know, I don't want to have this thought, so I need to push it away. I shouldn't be in company when I'm like this, so I need to withdraw. But then we start to see in CBT how some of the behaviours might not be helpful to us. And they might be keeping that cycle going. So we target the behaviors first generally and see how that changes some of the thoughts and the feelings and the physical sensations. And when we start getting a bit of traction there, then we move into the, the harder to tackle thoughts. Some of them might have already changed by changing our behaviors and some of them might be more ingrained. So then there's a bit more exploration about that, where the thoughts have come from, how valid they are, if we bring in different information, if we put it to other people, And so there's lots of different ways that we can explore that. Um, And I guess a big criticism that people have of CBT um, is that it says the predominant way to change our emotional experience is via our thoughts and behaviours and not directly. And I think a lot of the research um, moving forward in the last even kind of 10, 15 years is that actually we have a direct line to our emotions as well through our physical kind of uh, what we do physically um, and paying attention to our physical sensations. But also there's different kind of emotion regulation things that we can do, you know, self-soothing. But I mean, at some point, I think it starts to get a bit pedantic because in my practice, I use CBT as a central framework and we could just conceptualize emotion regulation as a type of behavior that feeds into our emotional experience. Or, or yeah whatever I, I don't think it matters too much the other criticism of cbt i think is it, it was developed to be like a time limited therapy so that people have capped off sessions and 
therefore it was very attractive economically for health services okay if you know people are given 12 sessions of cbt and they're better by the end of it and they stop presenting to healthcare and they stop needing all these medications then that's cheap so yeah great let's do it and then these centers in the uk uh, improving access to psychological therapy iap centers were developed in order to increase that access to cbt um and so we can get very good results in iapt but for the people where there's been long-standing issues or problems are slightly more complex it's not just depression or it's not just panic disorder there's a mixture of all sorts of stuff and maybe a history of trauma we need more sessions um to to probably work through things so there are some limitations at least to the way that it's practiced but I don't think it needs to be to the model itself, which can be really, really helpful way of people understanding their own experience and breaking it down and making some changes. Yeah. So there's no one size fits all. And mm. uh, a, a saying I heard recently, a uh, guy, Rich Rowley is a big podcast. He was like, I think he said, uh, is it feelings follow action? Have you heard of that one before? And uh, yeah. would you think there's any truth to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the key premises in CBT that, uh, when a good example is when people feel depressed they're like I don't want to do that because I don't feel like it so what's the point but if you then coax them into being able to just try it out and see how they feel even if that you know going out for a walk or calling a friend actually they start to feel I don't feel as crap as I did before not saying that your depression goes away overnight by one little simple thing but actually if your mood was like a um nine out of 10 on the depression scale and then you call that friend and it's only a seven out of 10 you know that's a good little uh decrease there and we can build on that so action is really important for for influencing how we feel yeah yeah i think like with depression or any mental health challenge it's like your mind can kind of trick you into telling you mm-hmm. that you're weaker than you actually are and then exactly. your body can sort of prove that you're actually you know the human spirit's incredibly strong so yeah it can kind of disprove that notion um yeah. So relating to disproven notions, uh, social media. So uh, I think it's like it's like this sort of runaway train. It just keeps growing and growing. And uh, <laughs> it's like everyone's on social media. It's like a, it's like we're part of a, a live experiment that nobody signed up to, that everyone's involved <laughs> in. And uh, yeah, it's like uh, I kind of don't know what to make of it, but I try and avoid it now, to be honest. But um, yeah, what are your thoughts on sh- social media and the effects it has on on uh, mental health and then also is there any kind of ways that you know as a an expert you know psych, a psychological expert yourself that you kind of consciously use social media so that you kind of I guess get the most out of it without having any side effects or minimizing the side effects yeah I mean again it's so individual for different people uh, and it can mean so many different things to different people um I suppose and it's like you say, it's constantly evolving. So whereas it used to be Facebook, which did seem to foster a sense of kind of better connection with people for a while because you were seeing people that you hadn't seen for ages, then there it kind of evolved into this sense of obligation. If you did something, you had to upload the photos. If someone posted, you had to like it. And then I think people got a bit sick of that and it kind of moved over maybe more to Instagram um where it was less about having to kind of share your inner thoughts but you could just share pictures um and so, so 
that's one of the difficulties that we've got. Social media is constantly evolving and our, our expectations and way that we operate evolve with it. And we have to work out how, yeah, bring intention to that. Do we want to play that um, role? Do we want to engage with it in the way that it's expected or are we going to opt out? And actually, I deleted Facebook in 2012, I think, Um because I was just like, I don't feel more connected to people. In fact, I feel like I'm having lesser quality interactions because people think that they know what I did. And I'm also getting frustrated because I'm seeing a whole range of opinions that I don't really care about and that actually don't always align with what I think. So I'm just, you know, in a state of frustration with people. Whereas if I saw that person on the street or in a bar or whatever, we'd probably have a nice conversation. But now the unsolicited kind of opinion has felt oppressive to me and that's not their fault that's just the nature of Facebook um so I deleted it and I felt so much better for it my uh, quality of friendship um kind of got better it felt like I yeah and then I haven't had Facebook since but I did I stopped and then I had Instagram but I just didn't really use it that much a, a sporadic post I wasn't really um I wasn't somebody that was on it every day and then it was only two years ago that I started an Instagram account professionally so not for like personal use and that was more to disseminate this kind of health psychology research and um practice stuff that I think is so important to kind of raise awareness and understanding of and so initially it was just a nice little kind of hobby and then I guess it kind of resonated with people and then the following grew quite a lot to to a point that I didn't really envisage and then it rather than becoming something that I just did if I wanted to something that I felt like I had to feed and I guess you know from that came opportunities you know came um yeah different bits from talking to interesting people to going on podcasts to um consultancy work and all sorts of stuff so that was nice and it branched out different ways of spreading you know the word around health psychology the stuff that I was interested in but it also meant that now there is a sense of obligation to keep on there for me but that's not a personal one it's a professional one but it's still something that I have to uh, keep an eye on um, because the nature of the platforms is to keep you sucked in and to keep you kind of making sure you're feeding the beast so in terms of how I use it I mean just recently I um, kind of checked in with couple of things one was now there's this shift towards reels and I resisted that for a while because I was like I don't know how I'm gonna say what I need to say in like 15 seconds flat or whatever um and so I kind of boycotted and now they're really strongly pushing it so you, you kind of have to use them so I just experimented I used the you know the this idea of rolling with the resistance and just seeing what happened and I guess part of that was me agreeing with myself not to be so perfectionistic. It doesn't have to be like a crystal clear message and it doesn't have to be the most aesthetic thing. But, you know, what's the key point that you're trying to get across? And so that helped um, to some degree. And then um, but as I was experimenting, my own behavioral experiment was to do that a bit more frequently so that I couldn't be perfectionistic um, and I couldn't kind of pay too much attention to how it was received Um and then I realized from doing that, it meant that I was more on, I was on the platform more. And so that was having an impact on kind of my focus. So then, then I had to clock in again and be like, right, I need to not 
be on the platform um, within particular hours and um, yeah, just kind of create a, a bit of time where I'm saying I'm creating content and outside of that, not be on it and kind of limit you. So it, you have to, cons- as things you know change with the social media scape, you change and then you have to keep kind of bringing in that awareness of how you're you're doing things and whether that's best serving you and the, the way that you want to spend your time yeah it, it ties back into the mindfulness again be, be mindful mm-hmm. of how yeah. you're interacting with the the beast essentially yeah so yeah. It sounds like you definitely were but also it comes with its own challenges and yeah. it's almost like the goalposts are always moving you know because there's like a trend or um you know for example tiktok there's there's loads of trends there and uh, mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not mindful you can kind of get caught up in them um yeah. yeah. But um, Sula, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything that we didn't go over or anything you want to mention at all? You know, maybe some of your work that's coming up or posts or anything like that at all? Um, no, not really. I think that's everything. If anybody does have IBS, I'm going to be running a group um, in May, all online via Zoom. But um, apart from that, no, that, that's great. It's been lovely chatting. Brilliant. Yeah. And it's ironic that I'm calling social media a beast and that's how uh, we connected and your work <laughs> your work is, is really good on it that's you know what kind of caught my eye is the um the quality of the posts you have so keep up the good work and uh thanks for your time cheers thank you for listening to episode 26 of the progression health podcast that was the first episode in a series on mental health and mindfulness a lot more exciting guests and information to come so uh subscribe like listen all that kind of stuff tell people you know if you enjoyed this episode or if you have any questions about mental health and mindfulness, um, my email is attached to the posts. So please get in contact or progressionhealthcoaching at gmail.com is my email. In other news, then I also have spaces available for one-to-one personal training here in downtown San Francisco, or I also have online coaching spots available. So if you're looking to improve your health and you want to really cut out all of the effort you've been putting in with little reward. If you want to kind of fast track your way to a healthier you, a stronger you, then get in contact now. And my email again is progressionhealthcoaching at gmail.com.